Vision Edge gives you less eye strain and reduced damage caused by blue light. We like to call Vision Edge sunscreen for the eye. It all starts with your highest level of visual performance, only achievable through scientifically proven Vision Edge. Hello and welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. I'm Dr. Kerry Gell, the host of the documentary, Open Your Eyes. Please visit the film's website at openyoureyes2020.com, featuring interviews with more than 50 optometrists from around the country, sharing information on eye care and eye disease. If you like our interviews, press like and subscribe. Also leave comments. This helps us continue to bring great interviews. Welcome back to part two of our interview with cardiologist, Dr. Joel Kahn. In this episode, Dr. Kahn discusses the best diet, foods, lifestyle, and biohacks to prevent and even reverse heart disease. You mentioned some uh, supplements if somebody has some plaque. What are some of the specifics that, that you may recommend? Yeah, the ones that come up and show some promise um, include vitamin K2, vitamin K2, different than leafy green vitamin K1. Uh, there's some data from Rotterdam, Netherlands, that the more you have vitamin K2 in your diet, the less calcified are your arteries, the lower is your risk of heart attack and stroke. In the, it's not a very easy nutrient to get in the plant-based world. There's a Japanese food called natto. You can get it at a sushi restaurant or a Japanese restaurant, natto paste or natto sushi roll. It has a distinctive and not very elegant taste for the American palate, but you can buy it. Many supplements now are vitamin D with vitamin K2, maybe a very good bone supportive supplement. We don't yet have the study I'm waiting for which is an actual reversal study with vitamin K2. It does improve flexibility of arteries in women with hypertension in a randomized study. A lot of suggestive data. Interestingly, Dr. Budoff, UCLA, came back with bottles of aged garlic from Japan 10 years ago. He's done five or six studies. You have a baseline heart CT or CT angio. You take an aged garlic pill every day or a placebo. These are randomized studies. There's actually some improvement in the volume of plaque by aged garlic. So it's harmless, it's inexpensive, it doesn't make you smell. Eat all the garlic you want. The aged garlic is special. It also lowers your blood pressure and thins your blood a little. And then there is an interesting herb called pycnogenol. It's an antioxidant from the bark of French pine trees. There's about six studies from a university in Italy. And if you have carotid plaque and now there's a heart calcium study, randomized double line. There are some advantages to being on some of these herbal approaches. Now, it may be a statin when needed. It's certainly always lifestyle. There's a couple others out there. There's a study from uh, Italy with a citrus called bergamot. That's a tablet, but it's from a, a lemony citrus from southern Italy that can reverse carotid plaque compared to placebo. And there's another blood thinner called natokinase. comes from a soy broth that also, in a single study, reversed plaque. So... Sometimes I'll use these combinations. Whatever it is, they sure look better, you know, when we do a follow-up in a year. I appreciate that. Now, you mentioned the endopat. How accurate do you think it is? And talk about endothelial dysfunction a little bit more and, and yeah. use the endopat to help diagnose it. Yes, and for those that don't know, the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1998 was awarded for three scientists and their team identifying how important endothelium making nitric oxide was for vascular health, brain health, gut health, sexual health, uh, around and around. And we knew that 
L-arginine, a amino acid that's in food like watermelon and pine nuts, but can be bought as a supplement, can increase the amount of nitric oxide. And that's where Viagra, Cialis, and Levitra came from because they also work through the nitric oxide pathway uh, very similarly. Um, but clinically, it's very hard to measure, are you making enough nitric oxide? Is your endothelium working? A healthy blood pressure suggests you're making enough. Good strong erections are suggested that you're making enough. There are test strips you can buy on you know, uh, internet sites, nitric oxide saliva test strips, reasonably accurate. If you turn nice dark red after putting some saliva, you seem to have a reaction and you're making a lot of nitric oxide. It's a reasonable thing to do. Uh, there's a blood test that Quest Lab offers, I think others, ADMA, asymmetric dimethyl arginine. But if it's high, your nitric oxide production is low, and there's hundreds of research studies. You don't want a high ADMA. That's where I'll really focus on endothelial support. It might be beetroot powders, it might be beetroot lozenges, quit smoking, exercise, lifestyle, eat leafy greens and beets. Uh, the endopad is really the only functional way, practically, you put a blood pressure cuff on the arm for five minutes with a probe on both your fingers, let the blood pressure come down. You should have a flood of blood if you have healthy endothelium. And there's a quick measurement that's made. It takes about 15 minutes. And for example, studies at the Cleveland Clinic say you're a heart patient, endopat normal. Your five-year prognosis is much better than you're a heart patient, endopat abnormal. You've got sick endothelium. So... We use it and uh, it correlates with that other blood test. And then we try and alter the lifestyle or the pharmacology. Lots of things improve endothelium. Things that lower blood sugar, whether they're prescription or lifestyle, lower blood pressure, or directly supportive like arginine, citrulline, uh, and um, dietary nitrates like leafy greens and beets, beetroot tablets. You mentioned before the carotid IMT. Yes. How difficult is that to do? How accurate is it? What does it tell us? Well, it's very simple to do. It's an ultrasound like people are you know, aware of for gallbladders or babies or pregnancies. Uh, it's painless, takes about 20 minutes. And it's the same machine you do a routine screening ultrasound. It's the software. It's the digital acquisition software to measure plaque, characterize the plaque as hard or soft, and measure the thickness of the carotid artery supported by, last I looked, probably close to 2,000 research studies. You can track plaque progression, plaque regression, using pharmacologic agents, using lifestyle. Um, and you can do that in an 18-year-old in Louisiana and see plaque, which is rather scary uh, about the Southern lifestyle. Although I think we did it in most parts, even New Jersey and Michigan, you'd see clearly some plaque in uh, high school graduates, unfortunately, probably more than ever. Uh, given, you know, kind of the deterioration in our food chain lately. Um, it's accurate. I mean, there is a factor of technologists getting the right angle. You know, CT scan, lie down, tell your breath. It's pretty technologist independent. The ultrasound takes a good qualified vascular tech, but it's unique in that it's inexpensive and it's uh, free radiation. And it's a direct look. I'll give you a, there's a research project going on in Madrid called PESA, P-E-S-A. And they've got 4,000 bank workers in Madrid. And every couple of years, they get a carotid ultrasound, an ultrasound of their femoral artery, an ultrasound of their belly looking for an aneurysm, and a calcium CT scan. These are all asymptomatic people. All, all kinds of things have been reported. Like less than half, but about 40% of these healthy people in their 40s have plaque in their arteries. And the most common is actually the femoral. 
followed by the carotid. The calcium score is the least common because calcification takes some time. These are younger people. If they repeat it in their 50s, there's going to be a lot more positive calcium scores that are high. And it correlates with your LDL cholesterol level. There's a lot of naysayers that think LDL cholesterol doesn't matter. Well, in the FACES study, it's like an amazing straight line. The higher your blood LDL cholesterol, the more burden you have. I'm sure if they measured insulin resistance, it would also be a pretty clear association too. And that test takes 20 minutes? That's about all, 25, 20. Talk about heart rate variability test. How, or how, how important is that? Do you use it? Yeah, it's interesting. And heart rate variability, you have a sophisticated audience, but it's very simply when you breathe in, your heart rate speeds up. When you breathe out, your heart rate slows down. That's a normal variation driven by your parasympathetic nerves from your brain to your heart and your sympathetic nerves from your brain to your heart. There's also a very rich system from your heart back to your brain. And I was involved in the 1980s in research studies at the University of Michigan on type 1 diabetics because it's been a long observation. A lot of type 1 diabetics begin to run a tachycardia. The heart rate's 85, 90, 98, 102. And when they breathe in, there is no increase. When they breathe out, there is no drop. They lose heart rate variability. It's a sign of heart neuropathy, autonomic neuropathy. And it's very uh, poor prognosis if a diabetic develops that. Ultimately, they may start to get dizzy when they stand up and show other th signs of neuropathy like finger-toe neuropathy. And they'll very often have retinopathy, of course, too, and nephropathy. But we can find that amongst the general public. And there's many studies. So you can um, you know, wear a ring. I wear a ring at night called the Aura Ring. It monitors your sleep, but it's very accurate. Or some people wear a Whoop, which is a band. I don't have stock in any of these companies. But you know, it tracks your breathing, and it can calculate your heart rate variability. It can be a sign as you start dropping your heart rate variability, something's wrong. It can be an early sign of illness, an early sign of altered diet and metabolism. Uh, diabetics, as I mentioned, people with high blood pressure, alcoholics, end-stage kidney disease, all lose heart rate variability. And you can get it back. Yoga, meditation, breathing. There's an online program called heartmath.org. You can do it on your smartphone with a little clip in your ear. And by practicing over and over certain very simple breathing exercises, you actually improve your heart rate variability. Getting good sleep at night improves your heart rate variability. So it actually, if you looked at the science, you'd say, whoa, this is a like really, really important marker. And it is, but it hasn't made its way very often into traditional medicine. How about 24-hour blood pressure monitoring? It's the bomb diggity, as they say. <laughs> so again, for those that don't know, just like you can wear a 24-hour heart monitor for palpitations, we've had for years, you just put a cuff on your arm and you walk around for 24 hours and it's preset. Usually it's about every 15 minutes during the day and every 30 minutes at night. The first hour you wear it, it's scary because that damn cuff's going up and down. You get used to it. In fact, they throw the first hour of data away because people are uh, hyper-reactive to just the whole system of getting your blood pressure back. But there's lots of uh, research, good quality research that, that is the single best way, ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, 24 hours, you can go 48 hours if you want. And uh, what happens during the day is important. Usually when I get a report back, because I do have a device, it's about like 50 measurements in 24 hours. But what happens at night to your blood pressure, when you're never gonna measure it, you're asleep. 
you want your blood pressure to drop normally. That's called normal dipping of your blood pressure at night. But some people dip excessively. That's actually associated with more problems. Some people don't dip at all, non-dippers. That's associated with stroke and other vascular damage. So there's a really interesting paper at the end of 2018 called the Hygia Chronotherapy Trial. 19,000 people in Spain in family practice clinics on blood pressure medicine. All they asked them to do was, you, 9,500, take all your blood pressure medicine in the morning. You, 9,500, take all your blood pressure medicine in the evening. They had them wear every year a 48-hour ambulatory blood pressure cuff. At the end of six years, stroke and heart attack went down 50% by taking your blood pressure medicine at night. And there was actually much more effective blood pressure control on the ambulatory monitor, particularly at night. Taking your blood pressure at night, and always talk to your own healthcare provider before altering anything, but it did return nighttime blood pressures to a much more normal cycle, and there was actually clinical benefit. So it's one of the first thing I teach my people. You know, if they're on a water pill, I don't ask them to take it before bed. That seems cruel, but all the others, I try and shift to nighttime. There are certain people that wake up in the middle of the night, three o'clock every morning, and from doing that 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 twenty-four hour blood pressure. It found that their pulse rate shot up and then their blood pressure shot up and that was waking them up in the middle of the night. Yeah, and there, you know, some people get hypoglycemic and a little snack. There actually are some melatonin capsules with a little MCT oil in them to kind of provide a little blood sugar support during the night. Those are possibilities, but yeah, very interesting findings. So it could be on? sleep apnea. It could be, you know, your heart rate and pulse rate shot up if you're not breathing and storing, and the frequency of sleep apnea is insanely high. Of course, dying uh, trumps, I guess, blindness, to, so to speak. <laughs> but a lot of times, patients that take their blood pressure pills at night, when their blood pressure drops, their perfusion pressure to the optic nerve gets less, and their glaucoma progresses. progresses. Ah. So we have to speak with the cardiologists and see if that's something that, that they will allow us yeah. to, to change. But it yeah. seems like it may not be such a good idea. Yeah, for some. You know, and like a lot of these things, the earlier in the illness, the better. So, you know, some of these younger, healthier people just starting blood pressure therapy might be totally appropriate for. I agree. There's a lot of people on twice-a-day dosing. It's not going to work. And diuretics, it's not going to work. in these frail elderly people with eye disease. I agree with you completely. Let's talk about labs. Uh, obviously, I got to ask you about cholesterol. The best yeah. type of, the, uh, the regular way of doing cholesterol seems to be kind of, more archaic. Now we're looking at fractionated cholesterol. Uh, if you could talk about particle size, particle number, how important that is. Yeah, for quite a long time now, about 15 years at least, most labs, LabCorp, Quest, your local hospital lab, offer an advanced cholesterol panel. There used to be one called the VAP profile, VAP, but that's off the market. And now it's just called an NMR advanced lipid profile. And it's not expensive. So they basis for it is that in a couple big trials, one's called the MESA trial, one's called the Framingham trial, there was um, a discordance. There were people that, you can have two people with an LDL of 112, but one person, their particle number, their particle size shows a lot of risk. The other person, their particle number and their particle size are more optimal and low risk. These are particularly the case in metabolic syndrome, pre-diabetics, diabetics, insulin resistance, you'll see much more of this discordance. It's more favorable to have fewer LDL particle numbers of large size. It's less favorable to have more LDL particle numbers of small size. They may give you the same LDL. 
So I've been drawing these advanced lipid profiles for years and years and years. They're also HDL cholesterol, the high density, which we believe higher is better. The most accurate way to measure it is the high HDL particle number and higher is better in some very recent studies that's showing. Um, and you may not need to do it every time. I mean, if you get the routine panel and the advanced panel and they correlate, you can just keep going with the advanced panel. But we haven't altered our measurement of cholesterol from what we did 50 years ago. And I think that is a mistake. We can learn more. Then you got to add on the lipoprotein little a, because that won't show up on either of those panels, routine or advanced. I like to measure something called apolipoprotein B or APOB. It's another way, very inexpensive, a couple dollars, to kind of get a really good sense of all the LDL-carrying lipoproteins, of which there's more than just LDL. I like inflammation, so we're going to do at least high-sensitivity C-reactive protein. If it's abnormal, you got to ask, is there too much visceral fat around the waistline? Is the diet off? Is the dental health off? Is there skin issues like psoriasis? Um, are there vitamin deficiencies like omega-3 deficiency, on and on and on? Maybe homocysteine as a routine, hemoglobin A1C at least, though it's not necessarily the best uh, screening test, but at least it's a screening test for elevated blood sugar over a few months. But really, if you want to get fasting insulin and glucose and do a two hour postprandial insulin and glucose, and you'll find many more insulin resistant people. And vitamin D? Yeah, always vitamin D. It's just so prevalent. Uh, you and I don't live in uh, the equator. And even my colleagues that practice cardiology in California and Arizona tell me they see vitamin D deficiency. They're not lying outside for you know an hour shirtless it's either too hot or they're working or whatever it is. So uh, measuring it. And nobody knows if maintaining a really good vitamin D level will help you resist COVID. I mean, there's discussion and I would never make that claim, but it's not a real good idea right now to be severely vitamin D deficient by at least some of the reports of those that are severely ill with COVID seem to on average have a lower vitamin D level, but they also have a whole host of metabolic and health issues too. And how about triglycerides? Is, is that a bigger risk factor than uh, fractionated uh, small particles, or is it equal? How do you, where do you throw triglycerides in there? Yeah, you know, our, our big societies, American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, European Society of Cardiology, we really haven't focused on like HDL triglyceride ratios. We talk about it, but they're not the primary goal. The primary goal is lowering LDL cholesterol in those that have disease. Uh, and we have a whole armamentarium of drugs now that do it more than just statins, as well as obviously lifestyle, weight loss, exercise, and some supplements. However, there's a very vigorous group that argue uh, insulin resistance is you know, one of the fundamental metabolic problems that drives atherosclerosis, drives aging, drives Alzheimer's, type 3 diabetes, some people will call brain disease. And yes, I mean, you can't ignore triglycerides. As always, follow the money. There's several new prescription fish oil uh, versions that are out that have some new, very large studies that lowering triglyceride in heart patients has an impact on outcome. So we're all about talking about triglycerides and treating triglycerides. We used to use Tricor, Phenofibrate, uh, Gemfibrozil, and they never really were a very pleasing drug. So we kind of stopped talking about it. Now, to really get an accurate triglyceride, you want a fasting triglyceride. But I don't ignore when I get them non-fasting and you're four or 500. It's just like you got a glucose non-fasting of 350. I mean, it's, it's still very significant to see that's what's happening after your meal. You're getting 
a lot of rich, creamy, lipemic blood, and that's not very good for your risk of uh, uh, heart attack and stroke. How about some advanced labs like MPO, cardiac yeah. fibrosis? Uh, you've mentioned yeah. ADMA before. Yeah, I, you know, I do all these, but you're right. You know, I, I'm just begging everybody get one inflammation test, high sensitivity C-reactive protein. But you can add to that. The Cleveland Clinic through Quest has myeloperoxidase MPO. There's a test with you know hundreds of research studies to support it called LPPLA2 or the plaque test, another vascular inflammation test. ADMA, although it's a nitric oxide test, is usually lumped in the inflammation test. I think these are useful. A ferritin is an iron storage a blood test, very inexpensive, but when elevated, it's considered an inflammatory marker. And what I like about it is you see people change their lifestyle or get their numbers better, and these inflammatory markers improve a lot. There's a pretty cool one called TMAO, available only through Quest Labs, trimethylamine N-oxide. It's a blood test. But over the last 10 years at the Cleveland Clinic, there's pretty clear data that when we eat red meat and egg yolk, some of us have bacteria in our microbiome that allow us to make this metabolite that we really never heard of until 2011, TMAO, and it may cause atherosclerosis and fibrosis of tissue, kidneys, and heart. And by altering our diet, it's also people take L-carnitine and choline as supplements, so you might eliminate that. Monster energy drinks have L-carnitine, so I've had patients slamming down a couple monster drinks and their TMAO levels high. Uh, as always, Cleveland Clinic doesn't talk much about adopting a plant diet for TMAO. They talk about we're going to find a specific blocker that we can patent and bring out as a pharmaceutical. But in the meantime, you can adopt a Mediterranean diet and lower your TMAO level. Maybe balsamic vinegar, even resveratrol has some benefit in lowering it. Um, fibrosis, it's an interesting topic. There's a very powerful predictor called BNP, beta natriuretic peptide. It's a hormone the heart releases. And if it's elevated, you wonder what's your average blood pressure, maybe it's a good time, you have leaky heart valves, you have a fibrotic heart. And there is one called Galectin-3, it's a blood test you can order, uh, and it suggests there is fibrosis going on in the heart from aging, from inflammation, from ultra-exercise that may be excessive congestive heart failure. Um, it's in the literature as a very powerful predictor. We're not sure what to do about it. One expert thinks there's a supplement called modified citrus pectin that lowers it. Uh, I'm not as confident as he is, but um, at least there's something natural out there that lowers it. How about fibrinogen uh, as, a, as a risk factor? Yeah, you know, it's that balance. We want our blood to clot, we just don't want excessive. And um, fibrinogen is a acute phase reactant. Um, it helps our blood clot, which is a good thing if you're delivering a baby or having surgery or bleeding, but we do know that clot's an important part, and um, it's an acute phase reactant, so measuring blood fibrinogen is available, and as you alter your lifestyle, improve your diet, quit smoking, lose weight, it will come down. So it is a reasonable one to add to the panel, and perhaps there's a nutraceutical called natokinase. I mentioned it already. Some people will add natokinase. It seems to lower uh, fibrinogen levels, but I'd rather do it at the root cause, if possible, lifestyle. And uric acid? Uric acid is a great one. Uric acid is a cheap blood test that relates to your risk of gout for anybody who's had the painful big toe. There's a wealth of data that it predicts serious problems with cardiovascular disease, congestive heart failure, hypertension. It is a routine one on my panel. 
And there's some really fascinating data, anybody can look up, that the drug often used to prevent gout, allopurinol, and other drugs like probenicid, they actually have tremendous cardiovascular benefit for angina, for chest pain. I will use allopurinol in some of my advanced heart patients, hoping to see their symptoms improve. There's studies that your treadmill exercise tests improve. There actually is a paper this week that starting allopurinol in congestive heart failure patients in the hospital reduced readmission. And it's, you know, still very novel in cardiology, but allopurinol, you know, fits in a couple buckets beyond just rheumatology use. It does have a role. Now there is a risk of a rash and you have to watch liver kidney, but it's a drug we've had for decades and decades and it's pennies of a tablet. And how about a baby aspirin every day? It seems one week it's on, one week yeah. it's off. Well, it's a, another great question. And, you know, at the end, and for reasons I don't understand, but at the end of 2018, three massive trials were reported in totaling about 50,000 participants. Take a baby aspirin, take a placebo, we'll follow you up. One was a group of healthy people around age 50, one was a group of healthy people around age 70, and one was a group of type 2 diabetics. And in none of those trials was it definitive that adding a baby aspirin a day lowered your risk of stroke and heart attack without side effect, because it, in some of those studies, it did lower the risk of stroke and heart attack, but there was a measurable bleeding risk and ulcer risk and other factors. So it came out in headlines all over, and they played for months and months, baby aspirin a day not part of a routine preventive program. However, the message got muddled because that never was the message if you've had a stent, a bypass, a carotid surgery, a TIA. Many people still should be on aspirin. So we're limiting it now largely to people that had those big events or procedures and maybe a high calcium score asymptomatic. Although there are natural thinners. We've never done a trial of aspirin with a high calcium score, but it seems to make sense but you can use natokinase, you know, omega-3, turmeric, garlic are all minor blood thinners, but you can't really measure their activity. So I'll generally recommend 81 milligram aspirin for a high calcium score. Getting back to endothelial dysfunction, I've, I've heard of certain doctors recommending small dose Cialis every day for endothelial dysfunction. Have you heard about that? And is that something that has any benefit? You know, it is generic now. It's become very inexpensive where it used to be a very luxury drug. Um, it does tend to have activity around 24 hours. And it's generally a safe drug. You know, it all, if you have healthy production of nitric oxide, you'll ultimately make a lot of cyclic GMP in your cells. And that's what Cialis does. It increases the amount of cyclic GMP. So it gets you to the same point. The only criticism would be you're not really addressing the root cause. You can make more nitric oxide by losing weight, exercising, eating better, optimizing your sleep, your waistline. Um, so it's a crutch. Like there's data, if you're on a statin, on average, people actually eat a little worse because they've got a crutch. I can have the hamburger and fries because I took my Lipitor. Psychologically, it uh, seems to affect some people. So you're giving people a crutch. I am certain Cialis improves endothelial function. I'm not sure I've seen kind of really a, a real research study suggesting that. But, you know, it is also approved for use in men with enlarged prostate to take it daily. So we have now a pretty good track record of the safety of a small dose of Cialis to Dalafil, five milligrams a day. You kill two birds in one stone. You kill two birds and you raise another. 
<laughs> That's right. <laughs> macular degeneration is a leading cause of vision loss, with 15% of Americans being at risk or already affected. Scientific evidence proves that by using mesozeaxanthin, lutein, and zeaxanthin together replenishes the macular pigment and promotes healthier vision. This formula comes in only one product, MacuHealth. So uh, with statins, I got, I got to, of course, ask you about statins. Primary prevention, secondary prevention, uh, side effects. You know, where, where do you fall on, and where do the functional medicine people fall? I know many functional medicine people are against statins. Yeah, that they're mitochondrial. They're not cardiologists. Yeah, they're mitochondrial poisons, you know, because of course, well, they, they, the reason we say that is they work on the liver to interrupt an uh, enzyme called HMG-CoA reductase, a pathway that results in you making cholesterol. So you take a statin, you make less cholesterol in the liver, but that affects you know, the total body levels. Um, there's another branch of that pathway, it's called the pharnaceal-pharnaceal pathway, fun name, that makes coenzyme Q10 and some other factors. And you don't necessarily wanna block your production of coenzyme Q10, an important antioxidant, important in energy production. Which is why a lot of us, we are gonna use a statin, we routinely recommend somebody take coenzyme Q10, tablet, liquid. Uh, there's not too many dietary ways to get coenzyme Q10. Um, there's just too much data. I mean, we now have statins. We have injectable drugs called PCSK9 inhibitors like Repatha. We've got a new class of drugs that just came out in the last six months called Bempadoic Acid and some others. And you can just track in heart patients, LDL dropping with weak statins, moderate statins, severe statins, and these newer drugs. And you can look at cardiovascular event risk. The lower the LDL in treatment, the lower is the cardiovascular event risk. So this is secondary prevention. These are hardcore heart patients um, where the number needed to treat isn't so god awful. Like the person with a calcium score of 10, the number needed to treat is ridiculous and don't do it. But if you've had bypass surgery, you're at real risk of more events and it's not going to take many people to be treated. I mean, all the guidelines recommend, except for the hospitalized patient, very sick, try lifestyle medicine for three or six months. Now that's not always given a fair chance because patients aren't told about Ornish, Esselstyn, Furman, Barnard, and some of the plant-based uh, diet pioneers that have shown outcome even in randomized studies. There are clearly side effects. Blood sugar can go up, brain fog, and the achiness uh, is a real deal. And many people have an achy and they didn't put two and two together even though it's been very widely known that some people will take a statin, feel terrible in three days or feel terrible in three months. But it's still, it's, it's not the majority. It does typically go away fairly rapidly uh, if they stop the drug. So um, you gotta pick the right patient. It's all about, if you see you know, disease in the eye, the neck, the heart, the legs, there's more reason to consider statins. But um, low dose every other day um, with CoQ10, there's a second drug called ezetimibe. It's not a statin, but you can use a very tiny dose of a statin with ezetimibe. They're both prescription drugs. We've had them both for decades. And you get a, the same result as using a high-dose statin. And that's a strategy I use a lot to avoid a high-dose statin and higher risk. But the blood sugar thing is real. If you, you know, are handed a statin and your fasting blood sugar is 130 or 120, it may be 150 in a couple of weeks. And no, it's an FDA-recognized side effect of statins in some people. Talking about azotismide, Zedia, uh, yeah. is there a role still for the fibrates? And do you, do you ever prescribe them? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And again, I'm not slamming pharma, but these 
prescription fish oil, the new one, is still name brand. It's quite expensive. And it's getting all the attention. In fact, right now, there's a cardiology meeting in Europe that's blasting out headlines. And a lot of them are about this prescription fish oil that could be hundreds of dollars a month where every fibrate is generic and inexpensive. So no, they're not getting much attention at all. Um, and uh, fish oil is uh, probably unfairly. And you know, for certain people that run a high triglyceride that hasn't responded to exercise and diet and correcting insulin resistance, you can use you know certain natural products like theanine from green tea may help or omega-3 over-the-counter, but prescription drugs still have a role. I can't tell you the last time I wrote a prescription for phenofibrate. It's been a long time. I have to ask you about uh, your, the do-it-yourself bypass, the EECP. <laughs> wow, you've done your research. So have, ha, ha, do you use that and you think it's yeah. effective? Yeah, so I can speak from clinical experience. I, I bought the first EECP machine in the state of Michigan about 20 plus years ago and brought it into practice in suburban Detroit. Basically, there's a pump you put inside the body if you're acutely ill called a balloon pump. And some Chinese scientists said, why can't we make a balloon pump outside the body by putting inflatable trousers on patients and synchronizing up, down, up, down this inflation on their legs and their butt. And the science suggested that drove more blood to the heart and created collaterals and improved patients with serious heart disease outcome. And then a professor in upstate New York, Peter Cohn, brought it to the United States in the early 70s, did such remarkable studies that it improved coronary blood flow, heart blood flow, that it got FDA approved as a therapy of angina. And that's what I brought it into practice for. In reality, most people with angina can be treated with medication, lifestyle, or stents, or bypass. So it has had a diminished role lately, although it's reimbursable by insurance companies. You lie down for an hour with these cuffs going up, down, up, down, up, down, five times a week for seven weeks. That constitutes a full therapy, 35 uh, studies. Some indication of my work for congestive heart failure, for erectile dysfunction. And in LA, where anything goes, some people are doing it just for general wellness and they're paying cash. Uh, it's rumored Gordy Berry of Motown fame has a big ECP treatment center in LA that supplies a lot, <clears throat> a lot of the stars their pump therapy. Um, I, I don't have a machine anymore. The use is down. I'll occasionally refer a real frail end-stage heart patient having angina. They really often do uh, improve a lot. I don't think it's placebo. There's actually data that improves your myocardial perfusion on a stress test if you do pre and post. That's why I got FDA approved long ago. There's a smaller unit now that's less expensive that makes it a little easier in a practice to uh, offer. You think it, it could prevent somebody from dropping dead of a massive heart attack? Um, you know, if you use it correctly, you're treating people that are at higher risk for that. They're really- Like they have the a high calcium advanced. score. They have a 400 calcium score. And maybe this is a good, I don't know, just in theory- I'd rather they take the machine and just roll it around the office and get some fitness. <laughs> I don't think it's really likely to be the answer to their problem. Touche. How about stents? I mean, there's been, you know, some, some recent studies on stents that they may not be as effective as we thought, really just for symptoms. Where do you stand on that? I mean, you have, you have experience. It's one thing yeah, to- I'm a, I'm a stent guy. I'm a stent guy. I put in stents since 1992 and tens of thousands of stents on every artery in the body. But I own the trademark Prevent Not Stent 
because actually th there's an amazingly beneficial role. If you're in the emergency room on the verge of a heart attack or in a heart attack, man, it can resolve your problem in 25 minutes and be very effective. You'll go home on powerful medicine. You have to take the medicine. A lot of it's blood thinners. You might run into some problem, but it's a great advance uh, and for sure. But all the other people. So for example, in April 2020, very recent, the most expensive cardiology trial ever was published. It's called the ischemia study. 5,179 heart patients, very bad stress tests, very bad heart disease, randomized. We're gonna put you on medication, good diet and fitness, or we're gonna put in your stent or your bypass, and we're gonna follow you for up to five years. When the study results were announced, there's no difference in death rates and most other measurements by getting on medication, eating a lower fat diet and walking every day compared to rushing to a stent. So for stable patients, Stents are no better than a good lifestyle and medication. For the unstable emergency room patient, they should be used. However, despite this large study, New England Journal of Medicine, you're not seeing a drop in the use of stents. It's the, you know, it's the heartbeat of cardiologists. It's also the backbone of the financial wealth of a hospital. And I mean, second opinions are available. I do them all the time. Many people don't need the stent being recommended. And there's risk. I, I have an active medical legal review life. And unfortunately, I look at many cases that look to be a routine stent placement and a terrible outcome or death occurred. And you kind of wish somebody had offered this person lifestyle and medication. Well, let's turn our attention to treatment and diet. There's different types of diet. There's, there's keto, there's vegan. I know you're a big proponent of vegan. Go over the research why that is the best diet for preventing cancer, cardiovascular disease, Ornish's research, Esselstyn's research, right. some of this research that's out there. Yeah, really succinctly. Number one, I do have some street cred because I'm 61 years old and I stopped eating animal products at age 18. I wasn't a tree hugger, uh, you know, activist, but uh, it was a reaction to the dormitory food. So I'm alive. I'm not in the protein deficiency ward and uh, all I eat are beans and peas and greens and fruit and nuts and seeds every day of various kinds. And it's delicious. I actually uh, own a plant-based restaurant in Detroit. So again, I got street cred there. But the science is overwhelmingly in favor of plant-based uh, diets. The fact that you can actually reverse plaque as demonstrated actually go back to the 50s and a pioneer named Lester Morrison, MD in Los Angeles. The famous engineer, Nathan Pritikin, showed you can reverse diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity, and angina with plant-based diets and fitness. And then the really elegant research that Dr. Dean Ornish uh, published in the best journals showing you can actually reverse plaque with lifestyle, including a plant-based diet. There's no other database for any other approach that's ever been shown to do that. Uh, the keto people would like us to believe it's possible, the carnivore people, even the Mediterranean diet, you, you know, though it's a far superior diet to eating what most people eat out of a bucket in the United States. Horses should eat out of a bucket. Humans shouldn't eat out of a bucket. But nonetheless, there is no actual plaque reversal data for any of those diets. And over the years, although the focus started with heart disease, we can now talk about randomized studies for almost half a year. Type 2 diabetes, much more effective to take a whole food plant diet than the American Diabetes Association. Increasing data, rheumatoid arthritis, um, lupus may respond to whole food plant diet. Increasing data that kidney disease progression is less on a plant diet than a meat 
face diet. So the wealth of actual data has expanded. These are always tough studies. They're always expensive studies. You can't get large numbers of people to follow two different diets long-term very easily. So if a study goes for 16 weeks, that's hard enough. If it goes for a year, that's really hard. And you know, we're somewhat limited in it, but there's without a doubt. And then if you throw in the fact that 98% of the meat we eat in the United States is factory farmed, it pollutes, it's cruel, antibiotics, hormones, pesticides, herbicides, uh, and all, you know, it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a perfect win to eat largely or exclusively whole food plants. There's a real pitfall there because junk vegan food is everywhere. Junk vegan food is not the solution. It's as harmful as any other junk food, you know, processed pizzas with fake cheese and fake pepperoni. They're vegan and they're nice to the animals, but they're not very nice to our arteries. Uh, I think that's one of the most difficult things with a vegan diet or the difference, maybe you could clear up the difference between vegan yeah. and vegetarian. Yeah, the word vegan was invented in 1944 by a Donald Watson in the UK as a activist animal ethics movement, noble. Let's not use animals in our clothing, in our life, and in our food chain because of our activism. And there's nothing wrong with using the word vegan, but from a medical standpoint, potato chips and Mountain Dew is a vegan meal, but it's not one we're talking about. Talking about, you know, the word that's been replaced is whole food plant diet whole food plant diet, Be, you know, things you can identify, one ingredient, that's a broccoli, that's a bean, that's a pea, that's a whole grain, like farro or quinoa or 100% whole wheat pasta. And you can make, you know, uh, the standard breakfast of vegans is a oatmeal, walnuts, berries, and flaxseed. I mean, it's like we, we swear a pledge to it. And gigantic salads and gigantic bean chilies and burgers. But there's a lot of, you can walk into Burger King now, of course, and get a plant-based burger um and uh, many other restaurants and it doesn't hurt you to do that once in a while for most of us but it shouldn't be the base of your plant diet it needs to be a whole foods those those plant berries those plant-based burgers that they have now seems like there's quite a bit of gmo in that is that correct or yeah well one of the leading brands is non-gmo and one is still labeled gmo impossible burger is still uh, labeled gmo um, but there is an interesting study just recent. It's called Swap Meat Study. It's out of Stanford, one of the best researchers in the nutrition world, Chris Gardner, PhD, where they had volunteers for eight weeks eat two meat burgers a day, and then they switched to two Beyond Meat burgers a day, quite a bit, actually. And at the end of eight weeks, they compared the results, and there was actually more weight loss, more cholesterol lowering, and a better TMAO inflammation level on the Beyond Meat burger than the beef burger. So even though you could argue the Beyond Meat burger is rather processed, rich in you know, added oils, uh, it is non-GMO. It's still, although far from perfect enough, I put one of my homemade quinoa bean burgers up against the beef burger. I think it's even more of a benefit, but that's not uh, something you widely find in a grocery store, you know, frozen food section. How do you do vegan healthy? Because I have a number of patients that are from India and they're yeah. vegans, and they have very bad heart disease, they have very bad diabetes, right. retinal disease. How do, you, how do you do it right? Yeah, well, the South Asian diet is not very healthy. Again, I was on uh, uh, a Zoom lecture this morning with New Delhi, and they have high disease rates. They characteristically run a low HDL and a high triglyceride. But although they call their diet vegetarian, it's very often rich in butter, rich in ghee, rich in... Um, cheese, paneer, a lot of fried food, 
And it's probably the worst way to do plant-based foods. When I speak locally at uh, Hindi temples or Sikh temples on occasion, I find it very hard to eat, even though it's presented as vegetarian fare. I might just go for some white rice. <laughs> Give me something plain, that single ingredient. So, I mean, you know, you look at the USDA food plate, which is not a vegan food plate. Half is fruit and vegetables, half is whole grains, and half is... Uh, a quarter is healthy proteins, which could be beans or peas. Uh, it really is pretty simple. You go to forksoverknives.com and there's an unlimited number of free recipes. You know, you only need, find what you like and I can show you a substitute. Uh, even if you like eggs and bacon, I'm gonna have to give you fake substitutes and I don't think they're that good. Well, you know, you like a beef chili, we'll just make a bean chili. You like a beef burger, we'll make a good quinoa or bean burger. Um, you like a piece of fish, well, we, we're getting, actually, there's pretty good plant-based tuna out now made of little flaky, it's actually pretty good, called Good Catch. We can get you there, but you know, find out to make five, six things that fill you up, and a big giant salad with everything possible in it with some red wine vinegar is always a winner. I've eaten this way for over 40 years, and restaurants can be tough. I can't tell you how many steakhouses I had the broccoli, the baked potato, and the Brussels sprouts, and frankly, half the people at the table said that looks better than what I'm eating, but that was survival techniques. And you have a, a few uh, vegan restaurants that you that you're a partner in. Yeah, really great. Thank 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 goodness, just one right now. And oh, right. it just it's it's a tough industry as everybody knows right now. But yeah, and there's a growing you know interest in eating healthy some of the time, and encourage you to eat healthy most of the time, all the time. There's a great one in New York, Quintessence. I don't know if you've ever been there. I, I remember that city. I used to go to that city. I'm not it's traveling as much. No, I haven't actually been to that one. Yeah. If you ever go there, it's raw foods, vegan. It's it, it's very good. What's Thank your you. opinion on fasting? Yeah. Fasting, What's the right way to do it? What's the right way, in your opinion, to do yeah. fasting? Well, yeah. Fasting is a the ability to unlock some pathways we have in our body in common with many animals and other organisms, even yeast, to repair, regenerate, and rejuvenate damaged parts of our body. And there, these pathways are there, but you have to lower your calories or completely stop eating to activate them. They're called the mTOR pathway, the IGF-1 pathway, and all. Much of this research is credited to a genius in Los Angeles, Dr. Walter Longo, PhD. He has a great book in 2018 called The Longevity Diet that I encourage you to look up and read. And what I do with patients is, although they can follow anything they want, Dr. Longo's created a five-day fasting program called the Fasting Mimicking Diet. His view as an Italian scientist of world renown was five-day water fast. Some people shouldn't do it. It's tough, and most people aren't going to participate. You're not going to go to work, and you're not going to feel good with a five-day water fast, although there's many people that are focused and capable of doing that. So he created an 800-calorie-a-day meal that creates the same physiologic response as water fasting. But you get to eat some, there's a nut bar, there's a soup mix, there's a couple olives a day. And it's enough to feel decent during the day, go to work, function, keep your brain working. Even sometimes you really get a real clear brain feeling. So that's called Prolon, it's five days, and for the rest of the month, you eat a healthy diet. It's backed by amazing peer-reviewed, even randomized studies, unlike most diet plans. So if I can introduce and sell my patients five days and you still eat not much and you're going to feel okay at least i've got them thinking about fasting and regenerating and longevity how about juicing versus smoothies 
um, I prefer smoothies. I think, you know, number one, fruit juice, not a fan. Take away the fiber, leave the sugar. You're going to get a glycemic response. Eat a peach, eat an apple. It's a pre-made snack that's very good for your blood sugar. But um, smoothies, there's one little downside, not much, but at least you're containing all of a, a leafy green or all of a blueberry or all of a walnut in there. Um, you know, whenever you pulverize anything, you're going to get a little different physiologic response when you eat it whole. So, you know, if you were to put a handful of blueberries in your smoothie and pulverize them, your blood sugar will respond a little less uh, favorably than if you actually ate and slowly chewed and ate the whole uh, blueberry. It's just, I mean, you take, you know, oats, you can eat groats, which is the original oatmeal, and then they're refined oatmeal, and then they're refined to McDonald's oatmeal, which is chopped up super fast instant. There's a difference in our blood sugar response. But I make smoothies often. I just don't turn it on very much. So my smoothies are, I call them chewies. There's still a little bit in there that I got to slow down a little, let it be in my mouth a little, and not, you know, knock down 800 calories in 15 seconds. Uh, might as well do a big Coca-Cola if I'm going to do that. What do you put in your smoothie? Leafy greens, berries, walnuts, a lot of ground flax or hemp. I'm a big omega-3 fan. And there may be a protein powder in there. Um, uh, I get sent a lot of things to sample. So I'm sampling a uh, all plant protein powder right now called complement powder and it's organic and it really is nice. I don't know that you need that every day, but for athletes, it's a real good choice. What's your opinion of kombucha? That's becoming popular. It's like supposedly the healthy soda. All right, got an itchy nose. You know, you got a Mountain Dew or you got kombucha, I'd rather you grab a kombucha. But kombucha, you just got to read the label. There are some kombuchas that have almost as much added sugar as some of the you know energy drinks. And there are some that are really very low. They're going to taste more vinegary, tea-like. And those are the ones I prefer. But there is a probiotic aspect and... Um, uh, perhaps a health aspect, but don't get fooled into the really high sh added sugar kombuchas. So if you're going to be a vegan, you may be low in B12, omega-3s. Take, you take supplements if you're a vegan or you can get the B12? Um, I test and then my blood panel will be, you know, vitamin D, omega-3, B12. And generally I'm recommending for somebody who's completely on a plant diet, either because of health reasons, ethical reasons, uh, environmental reasons, all the above, that they supplement. Uh, there are people that have a great B12 level, and for years they've been totally plant-based. Uh, we don't know why. It's great. Uh, there are a lot of milks that are fortified with B12. I'm talking plant milks and plant flowers and all. So they may be getting it through their cereals and through their other foods. But I don't take a chance. And what's nice now, there are a number. I use one called Complement, same company but it's one capsule that has B12, vitamin D, algae, omega-3, little iodine, little selenium. It's a one-stop shop. And it's a nice little backdrop to ensure, frankly, the general public would do well to take something like that, but certainly the plant-based eater too. And how about kids being vegans? How hard is that? Well, I don't see kids. I raise kids and two of the three adults I've raised are now vegan, but we gave them some leeway growing up. But uh, the American Dietetics Association, American Nutrition Dietetics Association, you know, has a very strong statement a couple of years ago that at any age from actually pre-pregnancy, pregnancy, infants, children, adults, even the elderly, they can thrive on properly planned, all plant diets. And, you know, I didn't raise my kids on, you know, uh, 
on all plants, but you can, and many of my friends have, and they're fine, but you want a diverse diet. You're not feeding them rice milk. It's going to get you in trouble and get you headlines in the newspaper for a malnourished baby. I mean, they got to be eating peas and beans and grains and seeds and, you know, uh, some of the milks like uh, soy milk, uh, some of the pea protein milks are very high in protein, which at certain stages of life, that's a good choice, beginning of life and end of life. So I wouldn't feed them on a thin little rice milk and nothing else. But uh, there's a lot of good pediatricians out there on social media that are plant-based pediatricians and dietitians that are definitely worth checking into. But you can do it for sure. I know dozens of healthy kids who've never touched an animal in their life from the day they were born. I think you once mentioned that the strongest man in the world is a vegetarian or a vegan. At least he had the title at one point, Patrick Bubamian from Germany. And if you watch the popular documentary Game Changers on Netflix, you'll see his story, but he's a beast. And uh, you know, so are many NFL football players and uh, other athletes around uh, the world, uh, thriving the world's best male tennis player and others. As we finish up, I have to ask you about oils. Uh, yeah. Coconut oil was good, it's bad, butter, uh, olive oil, avocado oil, which one's right. good for cooking, which one isn't good, which one's good for your salad dressing without giving you so many calories? So there's a big argument in the plant-based medical world, are oils good at all? Because many patients are being taught no oil plant diets, use your vinegars, use your lemon juices. That comes from the fact, if you look at seven heart disease reversal studies from the 1950s on, They've all been no added oil plant diets and they work and they will reduce your weight and your blood pressure and your atherosclerosis and your blood sugar. Now, would they worked as well if there was a tiny bit of extra virgin olive oil, tiny bit of another plant oil? We don't know because the studies weren't designed that way. That's assuming that the participants really followed that no added oil recommendation, but it seems that they did. Um, and we probably aren't going to redo those studies to ask the question, would it be as effective if they were whole food, plant-based, with exercise, with stress reduction, and some high-quality extra virgin olive oil. So uh, there is that role for a no-added oil. There are many websites, many cookbooks, plant-based eating without any oil. But among the rest, three months ago, Harvard School of Public Health, you're eating butter, you're eating lard, and you switch to a vegetable oil, particularly extra virgin olive oil was the focus of their study. Tremendous drop in cardiovascular risk. Uh, you know, it's less saturated fat. And it, so... I, in my own life, and I'm healthy, and I know my artery status, I am a fan of some extra virgin olive oil drizzled on some grilled vegetables, drizzled on um, a salad. Not much, but some. I'm not fearing it. Um, when we're cooking, it's probably going to be a spray of extra virgin olive oil, organic. Um, if we're really walking or high temperature, I might move away, although it does look like extra virgin olive oil. It does tolerate heat pretty well without a smoke point and deteriorating it. I don't cook that way too much, but uh, that's what I'd use. I know it's unpopular, but there actually is some data for organic canola oil, very heat resistant, and also in some heart studies being of some benefit. So I might choose that. Coconut oil, summarizing all the data, which there isn't enough, it's very high in saturated fat, uniquely high in saturated fat. Most of the associations, American Heart, American College of Cardiology, advise against it until there's more data. Of course, you can fill a room with health experts and have an absolute war over the topic. I do generally advise my patients to avoid uh, coconut oil if they have atherosclerosis. It, it just, the saturated fat concerns me, their cholesterol may go up.
uh, infrared sauna. I actually oh, have one in my it. house, and I love it. I just got out of mine before we went on and uh, use it as frequently as I can, a little more in the winter. But blood pressure, weight, inflammation, detoxification. It's a luxury to have one, but I absolutely love uh, the science, and there is quite a bit of science. In Japan, infrared sauna is a traditional therapy for advanced heart disease. It's called Waon therapy, warming heat therapy. So big fan of infrared sauna if you can get it, and red light therapy. It's called photobiomodulation. And what is there about red light therapy? I go on my infrared sauna, I turn on the red light. What do we know about it? That's cool. Yeah, I don't have a red light in my sauna, but you're getting near infrared and the red light is red light, which is a little different wavelength. But there's thousands of research studies on the impact of light therapy on wound healing, light therapy on mitochondrial function, light therapy on cellulite production or not, weight loss or not. It's a very rich body of data and it goes by the term photobiomodulation. You actually increase the amount of nitric oxide produced with red light therapy uh, along the cytochrome enzyme chain, there's a place that responds to near infrared light and releases nitric oxide for your blood vessels. So it used to be a $20,000 luxury if somebody wanted a room with a red light device or you'd go to a healing center or a dermatology center. Now for a few hundred dollars, you can get a pretty good panel in your house and it's not a tanning booth. You're not going to burn. It's not UV radiation. It's near infrared and red light. But there are FDA-approved indications for weight, cellulite, inflammation, skin, health. Uh, some of it's vanity and some of it's more than vanity. I mean, that's fantastic. I want to thank Dr. Joel Kahn of the Kahn Center for Longevity. He's been very generous with his time. If people want to find out more about you, about your books, about your podcast, how can they do that? Yeah, everything's at one central site, drjoelkahn.com, but that's D-R-J-O-E-L. K-A-H-N.com, drjoelkahn.com. Link to my clinic, and I'm still actively seeing patients from all over the world. Link to uh, my restaurant, you know, a lot of books, publications, all the rest. Thank you. What, what's the name of your restaurant, and where is it located? Yeah, it's in a town called Royal Oak, Michigan, suburban Detroit. It's called Green Space and Go. Wonderful place. And how often are you there? Uh, unfortunately, I get there on Fridays, because I take a little break from patients on Fridays. But... Uh, very nice group of people. Uh, keep it going. My son's involved. My wife's involved. So little tiny family business. Well, thank you, Dr. Khan. And I really appreciate you joining me today. It was a fantastic uh, discussion. You're a wealth of knowledge. This is Dr. Kerry Gell for Open Your Eyes. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I like to bring extra, and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you. 